0: Well, good evening. Good morning, Redemption. Tempe. It's, it's good to be with you. It's been a long day for me, apparently. <laughs> My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the lead pastors. It's good to be with you. Uh, today we're going to take a break from the John series just for one week, and we're going to have a moment where I can talk about some vision, some vision of what it looks like for us to be on mission as a church, uh, what it looks like for us. As we climb out of the pandemic season, and how are, what kind of community are we going to be? How are we going to press into God's mission? And for the last several months, almost every morning, I've been going to Papago Park, and I climb on this rock, and I pray and ask this question of, of how are we going to climb out of this season, and what are we going to look like? And I look out over the city... And I pray for the city, and I pray for you and your scattered occupations and vocations. And I, and I pray through this statement that we talk about a lot, that all of life is all for Jesus. But when I imagine what's going on in the homes of folks, and I think about all of life, it kind of feels like all of life is messed up. I know that inside... Those shut doors, there are marriages that are disintegrating. There are kids who are lonely behind glowing screens. There are people who are struggling to find work. We know that the poor who are trying to get ahead and they've been set back. And that in these homes, there's a lot of struggle and it feels like all of life is broken. And so sitting up on that rock, I've been praying and over and over again, God keeps bringing up this same passage, the passage I'm going to teach on today. And it's a passage that shows that Jesus is on a mission to restore all of life. And I've been trying to get away from this passage. I was wondering what I was going to teach today. And so uh, I kind of thought it should be this. And I went and prayed with Josh and Warren and they're like, this passage is what we need to hear today. But I really like Colossians. So all like for two weeks, I've been trying to convince people that I should preach on Colossians 1. And I had almost talked myself into it. But this passage kept coming up over and over again. And then finally, we went to an all-redemption staff meeting with all the congregations. And there was a guy who was coming to speak to us. And he told us that he had prepared something to teach us. But the night before... He felt like Redemption Church needed to hear Mark 2, the very passage that I'm going to preach on today. The very passage that Jesus has been haunting me with on that rock in Papago Park. And in this passage, we are going to see that Jesus is on a mission to restore all of life. We're going to hear the invitation for us to step into that mission And we're going to see three different types of communities there. The the scribes, the friends, and the crowds. And we're going to have to ask, what kind of community are we going to be? So let's pray. Spirit of God, we pray that you would convict us, that you would lead us, that you would show us this passage, but your heart in this passage more than anything else. We pray, Jesus, that we would see you as the only one who can bring restoration, and that we would hear your invitation to step into your mission. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and go to Mark 2. Mark 2, verse 1, it says this. It says, when he, that is Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. See, Jesus had just been on a a tour on a preaching tour where he's going around to the surrounding Galilean villages and he's preaching the kingdom of God and he's healing folks and there are rumors spreading around the region that there is this teacher, this healer, this prophet who is doing something totally unique. And Jesus' reputation is growing, especially after he had just healed a leper, someone with leprosy. An infectious skin disease where you couldn't get near the person because they would make you sick. But then Jesus put his hand on him and instead of being sick, he made him well. And that guy went around telling everybody about Jesus. And Jesus' popularity is growing. And it was growing so much that he, as soon as he got home, the town was a buzz. Now what's interesting is that this passage says that Jesus was home. Like, this was his house. It was probably Andrew and Peter's house or someone else's like that. But this is where he resided. This is where he would go to get a little space from the Pharisees who were always criticizing him. Get a little space from the crowds that were always trying to get him to do magic tricks and trick him with little questions. This was his home where he would go to rest but the town was buzzing as they heard that Jesus was back in Capernaum. And they started to say, he's here. And so people start collecting around his house. And, 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 and they're, they're pressing in on it. There's a crowd forming around his house. And they start treating Jesus like he's a celebrity. Imagine if LeBron James just shows up to a basketball court at some random park. And all the people would come running and crowding in on him. Or like if Justin Bieber, which apparently some of you like, went to the Yucca tap Room, It was packed out. They turned his house into a venue where he is now preaching. And they're listening to him preach. There's not even room at the door for anyone to come in. And we don't know what Jesus was preaching about. I imagine it was a pretty good sermon. The God who created everything could probably do a pretty good sermon but they don't give us the content of the sermon because what Jesus is about to do is he is about to, do, to to live out, to dramatize, to do an embodied sermon where he shows that he is the very God who has the authority and the power to forgive sins, to heal, to restore all of life. And so everyone's crowding around and there's this, this group of friends, this group of friends who gets together. Everyone's running towards Jesus's house, but this friend group had, you know, probably grew up together. And four of the friends said, hey, our friend, our friend who's paralyzed, we've got to get him and we've got to bring him to Jesus. Now, it doesn't say the names of these people on here, but let's, let's personalize it a little bit. Think about the your friend group growing up and think about them as the ones carrying their paralyzed friend to Jesus. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you my friends. So instead of random four random people, just imagine Wendell, the guy with the crazy ideas. You got Deshaun, he's good at all kinds of stuff. Robert, he's always skeptical. And who's on the mat? Who's on the bed? Well, it had to be my friend Joe. This guy was always getting hurt, so we're going to make Joe, Joe the paralytic. He was like trying to stand on basketballs and stuff, always cracking his head open. But this this group of friends probably knew each other really well, cared for one another, said, we have to get our friend to Jesus. So each of them, they grab a corner of the bed and they start hobbling toward Jesus' house. They're awkwardly swaying this occupied mattress closer and closer to Jesus. And they show up, but there's no room. They're late. In verse 4, it says, they could not get near him. They could not get near Jesus because of the crowd. All these people who wanted to see Jesus do some tricks were now crowding out Joe the paralytic. And it says that they they had an idea after this. I'm going to guess it was Wendell. Crazy Wendell says, I got an idea. We can't get in the door. But let's go up on the roof and let's tear open the roof to get to Jesus. It's a crazy idea. This wasn't like something that just happened all the time back then. Like, well, I guess the front door's locked. Just rip open the roof. No. So they go up there. They, they're 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 pulling their friend up on the roof, and the roofs in ancient Palestine, the buildings were were roofs that were made of like. Pretty natural things, like logs would create the main structure of it, but then it would have beams, uh, or it would have clay, and it would have different sticks, and it would all be woven together, and they get up there, they look each other in the eye, and they say, are we doing this? We're doing this, and those four friends, they start snapping back twigs, and they get their hands dirty, and they're pulling back clay, and they rip open A hole that's big enough to get their friend through and you can just imagine them peeking their head through and there's something about Jesus' response that says okay it's good to go bring him down right so they probably take some rope and they start lowering their friend down but think about this from the perspective of the people on the inside they're hearing the best sermon of their life they're like that old rabbi at that old synagogue he wasn't half as good as this Jesus guy and, and all of a sudden, their best sermon they've ever heard is now interrupted because little clumps of clay are falling in their hair and getting in their eyes. And then, you know, you start to see something going on above Jesus and you wonder if this is some sort of extraction. Are they here to, like, kidnap Jesus or something? And then the light shines through and the heads of these curious guys start looking and you're like, what is going on? What is Jesus going to do in this moment? Everyone's wondering, what is Jesus going to do? Is he going to efficiently heal the guy so that he can get on with his sermon? Is he going to yell at the guys who broke Jesus' house? This is Jesus' house, and they kicked a hole in the roof. What's going to happen? Jesus has the paralytic man, Joe the paralytic, sitting in front of him. And he looks up to the hole in his roof and he sees the friends. And mysteriously, it says he saw their faith. And then he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. It's a beautiful moment. But it is a surprising moment. Imagine if you were Joe sitting there at the feet of Jesus in that moment. You might be like, uh, thank you for the forgiveness, but... I'm not sure if you noticed, but the reason why I'm here is my legs don't work. The the crowds are probably like, come on, Jesus, do a trick. Do your thing. Heal him. Now, Jesus probably has every intention to heal the man, but Jesus wants to play a little game of show and tell with the scribes who are there, the religious leaders who are there. And, and he, he wants to, he wants to not, he wants to show them that he's the very God who has the authority to forgive sins, who is going to restore even beyond hurt legs, but to restore our hearts and to restore us back to God. Not just physical healing, but that he can forgive sins and bring us back to our relationship with the Father. And he could have just told them that, but instead he plays a little game with the scribes. And the scribes get upset. It says that now some of the scribes, in verse 6, were sitting there, questioning in their hearts. They're seeing Jesus and his mercy and his compassion, and they've got a little theological conundrum going on in their hearts. They're not saying anything to Jesus, but they're questioning in their hearts. They're like, why is he speaking like that? Is, is he blaspheming? Because they know that when Jesus says that your sins are forgiven... Only God has the authority to forgive sins. And therefore, if Jesus is saying that, is he saying that he is God, that he is the one who's speaking on behalf of God? And they're angry. They know that only God is the one who can forgive sins. But it would be nice if they would just bring up the conversation and ask Jesus the question. But these guys weren't in that business. These guys were in the business of trying to trap Jesus, of, of they're silently judging him, looking for a way to discredit him with a cynical and critical posture. But Jesus perceives this, he knows what's going on in their heart. So he asks, why do you question these things in your hearts? And then he continues to play the game with them. In verse 9, he asked the question: Is it easier? To forgive sins or to heal somebody? Let's take a poll. What would you have answered? Is it easier to heal somebody? Is it easier to forgive sins? Is it easier to not participate in a public poll? (laughs) They didn't know the answer either. It was sort of a trick question. Because on one hand... It's obviously harder to forgive someone's sins, to stand in the place of God and speak for God. But on the other hand, if Jesus is just a charlatan, if he's faking it, it's actually pretty easy to just mumble your sins are forgiven instead of healing somebody. So it's a trick question that's followed by silence. They do not answer it. But Jesus breaks the silence by showing that the question is a moot point. That Jesus is the very God who has authority to do both. He looks over. He heals the man. And the toes that were formerly stiff begin to wiggle. And then they turn toward the floor and they press against the ground. And then all of a sudden, the paralytic rises up. And he's standing there with his legs working. And the room erupts with joy. And praise and glorifying God. And they look around, and they're wondering, what is going on, And they don't have to wonder for long, because Jesus answers. He says that the reason he did that was to show that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And what would they have been thinking in that moment? It's an interesting choice of words. After they got over the, the the shock of the healing that's just happened, they would probably realize that Jesus is being intentional with his wording here. The term son of man, it could just mean human, but they would probably pick up on the fact that, that uh, in Daniel 7, there was this dream about this son of man type figure who would come and be the ultimate king who would restore all that was broken. And they could hear Jesus claiming to be that very king, that son of man who's come to bring restoration in that moment. But it's not just words. Jesus goes beyond words. He actually shows them that he is the God who is breaking in in that moment and bringing restoration. That he is the very one who has come. To, to heal that which was lost in the fall. To res- restore that which was broken. And, and how people had been looking for God to come and step into the brokenness of the world and to make things right. And here, fully embodied in Jesus, is the one who's bringing spiritual and physical and social healing. Spiritual healing in that the man who is alienated from God now has his sins forgiven. Physical healing in that the toes that could not wiggle and the feet that could not stand are now able to dance around the room and praise Jesus. And social healing as well, because the people who were injured or had disabilities in that time were often cast out of society. It was assumed that they did not have favor with God and that they had done something wrong, but Jesus allows this man to be the center of the room. And by restoring his health and restoring his his heart and forgiving him, he's restoring his place in society and, and fixing a social rupture that would happen there. He shows that he is the God who is on a mission to restore all of life. And that when Colossians 1, I told you I'd get Colossians in here. When Colossians 1 talks about Jesus as the one who's reconciling all things. It's a saying that what is happening in that moment where Jesus brings this holistic healing to this man is ultimately what his mission is, to restore all that's broken in the world. That the people who are alienated from God can repent and believe in God again and be restored to the Father. And that one day the physical wounds, the pain that we feel will be healed And all of the injustices and social ruptures will be mended because of the work of Christ. When he comes and he returns again, he is on a mission to restore all of life. And the church throughout the centuries, as we read this passage, we know that it is not just him who is on a mission, but he invites us to participate in his mission. Jesus says in John 20 that as the Father sent him, he sends us out into the world. And so the early readers of this text, when they were looking at it, they would probably see three different types of communities. Three different types of communities as options of what kind of community they were going to be. They would see the crowds who were just trying to get something from Jesus. They would see the scribes who were just trying to control Jesus. And they would see these four friends who were trying to join Jesus and participate And his mission of restoration. And so friends, today, as we look forward to what it looks like in this next season of life for us, I want to ask us those questions. What kind of community do we want to be? What kind of community does Jesus want us to be? Does he want us to be a community of consumers like the crowds? Critics like the scribes? Or a community of restoration like those four friends? So let's talk about it. Let's take them one at a time. What kind of community are we going to be? So number one, are we going to be a community of consumers? A community of consumers. Some have said that this is the most consumeristic society and era in, in all of history. It might be right, but there were consumers at other times too. It was the, the group of people in the New Testament that are often following Jesus around are often called the crowds. And often these people weren't interested in Jesus himself as much as what they could get from Jesus. They get some good teaching, some healing. They, they kind of perceive God's mission as, as, a, as a mission to give us some religious goods and services. And they get in the way. Verse 4 says that the paralytic man could not get near Jesus because of the crowd. The consumers are an obstacle to the people who desperately need and want restoration from Jesus. The consumers wanted something from Jesus more than they wanted Jesus himself. What about us today? Do we treat Jesus like he's a vendor of religious goods and services? Do we treat Jesus like he's the Burger King, where he looks at us and says, have it your way. I'm just here to customize your religious experience for you. Well, let me tell you, I think it's true. I think I got to illustrate it. But in order to illustrate, I got to throw one of my friends under the bus. Ryan Arneson, one of the pastors here. It's one of my best friends. Almost everyone who knows him loves him, 99%. But the 1% that doesn't know him, they are all servers at restaurants. They all do not like him because this man has a highly customized, specialized approach to every single morsel of food he's ever eaten. He sits down at a restaurant, and they come up to him. I just heard somebody whisper, it's true. It's uh. <laughs> He sits down at a restaurant, and they ask him, what would you like, sir? He says, just a hamburger. And you could see in their eyes, like, oh, this is going to be easy. He's one of those guys. But as soon as that thought just, like, touches their brain, all of a sudden, they hear him begin to ask about the tomatoes, and he says, well, let's just hold the tomatoes, but maybe we could double the amount of pickles and half the amount of onions, right? (laughs) Easy enough. Easy enough. But then he's like, and when it comes to the ketchup, maybe instead of ketchup, you could drizzle a little bit of basil aioli made from Sicilian olives. <laughs> and then he has to verify. It's like southern Sicily, right? That's where it's coming from. <laughs> instead of cheddar cheese, do you think that I could get crumbles of aged fontina sprinkled over a bed of dandelion greens? <laughs> then they always ask about the bun. Oh, he says, what kind of bun is it? Sesame seed bun. That's always the answer, right? And he says, well, maybe, I'd love a sesame seed bun, but maybe you could just like take the sesame seeds off and put them on the side so I can kind of distribute them as needed. And, and if possible, maybe you could take a Moroccan t- tagine and maybe toast the sesame seed to draw the oils out. This is a good approach to getting a good meal. Because everything he eats that comes out of the kitchen is good. But this is not a good approach to how we follow Jesus and how we interact with each other as a church and how we participate in God's mission. Because if we have that kind of approach, the approach of consumers, then we're going to devour one another. Here's here's what it looks like. You're like, what does that actually look like in, in life when I approach Mission and church, like Ryan approaches the food, you say, yes, spiritual waiter, I would like a small group, yes, but with my small group, could I get like a little bit of multi-generational in the group so that I can be mentored by older people, but please, no children like running around distracting things, right? And and, and with that, I would really love, not just multi-generational, but definitely some single people in there, because I'd really like to get married, but like, not the weirdo type of single people, like the specific type that I would like to marry. And I would love to be in a community where people are like truly authentic and show their true self and just like bring their mess to the table, but I'm like trying to cut toxic people out of my life, so if we could not have any of them... Jesus is not the Burger King here. And what about a sermon? Yes, I would like a nice sermon, but if, if we could make that sermon uh, just like, like theologically deep, but if you could compact it within 20 minutes, make it real funny, but be sure to bring conviction. Make me cry, but don't be emotionally manipulative and speak to the heart of culture, but don't get too political, right? Yeah. Jesus is not the Burger King. He is the king of creation. And before I start throwing y'all under the bus, I'll throw myself one. I once almost left a church when I was a new believer because of the music. I didn't know why they did the Jesus karaoke thing before the sermon, but I was okay with it. And then uh, I found out that sometimes people leave churches because of the sermon. So I thought maybe I should do that, right? And there's two reasons why I didn't do it. Number one, couldn't find a church whose worship music sounded like the Wu-Tang Clan. Couldn't do that. Um, Two was I spoke to a mentor of mine. And the mentor said, look, it doesn't matter. So what do you mean it doesn't matter? Of course it matters. He said, it doesn't matter because we are not singing the songs to you. And if we were singing the songs to you, then it might be really important. But since we're singing the songs to Jesus, what's important to him is that God's people are unified in lifting up their voice to him. And it's not about you getting something out of it, but it's about you encountering the living God. It's not about you. Friends, Jesus is not the Burger King. He doesn't stand over us and say, have it your way, but he is the king of all creation. And he stands before his church and says, join him in his mission of, rest- of restoration. That we get to be like those friends who get to grab a corner of this world and say, I'm going to drag this thing to Jesus because he's the only one who brings life. Even if it hurts. Friends, as we move forward into this next season, we will not be a community of consumers. But then the second question comes. Are we going to be a community of critics? In verse 6, we see a community of critics when we see the scribes. The scribes were these religious experts who studied things, who were always commenting on things. They, um, they were always walking around and following Jesus and just trying to find the flaw with Jesus and his disciples. You get the sense that they think that God's mission is to criticize and deconstruct all that's wrong with the world. And these folks are always getting in the way. They're getting in the way of, of, of Jesus as he heals and he preaches. They're, they're standing in front of the people who are suffering and saying, no, I need you to answer my questions. The people who desperately want to hear his preaching of the kingdom of God, they're interrupting and saying, what about me? What about me? They're getting in the way. And how do they respond to Jesus's compassion? They start silently judging him and conjuring up charges against him. They're trying to to load their gun of accusations as they listen to Jesus. They're not saying anything to him. You see, you might think, are you saying that there shouldn't be any criticism, that there shouldn't be good feedback? No. The critic is not the same thing as a person with sincere questions. Jesus loved and welcomed The sincere questions. And as a church, we should too. We should make space for one another to challenge one another. But that's not what the critic is. The critic, as it says here in the passage, it says that they were questioning in their hearts. They were not talking to Jesus. They were talking about Jesus. These folks were like the sports talk radio commentators of their day. You know, anyone here listening to sports talk radio? I like sports talk radio a lot. But if you think about it, it's kind of strange. It's a bunch of middle-aged men all day long criticizing the best athletes in the world. And if you were to ever look up a picture of one of these folks, they look just like me, and they clearly haven't been to a basketball court in like decades, but they can call LeBron trash. They're all talk, and they're no action. They're critiquing others, but they can't even look in the mirror. And Jesus' issue with them in in Matthew 23, he he has this speech where he blasts the scribes and the Pharisees. And one of the things he says is that they lay heavy burdens on other people, but they themselves won't lift a finger. They're all talk and no action. But what does this look like for us? Does any of this ring familiar? See, it's Easy sometimes to step out of God's mission and to feel like you're doing something by just becoming a professional critic. Keeping Jesus and his people and his mission at bay, a distance by criticizing and deconstructing everything. In our society, especially with COVID, where we all kind of just at first were like staying at home. There wasn't a lot to do but to just criticize stuff. And so it, we could have been shaping over the last several months a, a culture of critique where we become experts on everything. We're now all food critics, movie critics. We're experts in healthcare. We got the, the parenting critic who's judging other people's kids but demanding empathy for their own. The ideological critics where one group is busy deconstructing biblical sexuality and another group is deconstructing a biblical view of justice, standing at a safe distance, just judging and never jumping in. And then you've got the critical pastors who stand up on stage and judge people for judging people. So (laughs) here I am. We're all under the bus. And we need to ask... Are we acting like disciples or are we acting like critics? Are we acting like scribes? Because it could be hard to tell the difference sometimes. The scribes were following Jesus too. They were listening to every word that he had to say, but the difference was that the disciples wanted to obey and join his mission, whereas the critics wanted to find the flaw in whatever Jesus was saying. Let me give you some diagnostic questions to help you answer if you are a critic or acting like a disciple. Number one, is it easy for you to see the failures of others, but hard to see the sin and idolatry in your own life? Number two, when you have issues with your family, your friends, your church, your coworkers, do you directly talk to them or about them? Have you noticed that your former love for Jesus has devolved into cynicism and bitterness? And then finally, when was the last time you actually did something about the issue that you claim to care about? Are you a disciple or are you a critic? And I have to confess that when it comes to this, I am the chief of sinners. That I can have that bitter and critical heart. And I think the saddest part of COVID for me has been uh, seeing warm disciples drift into cold and bitter critics and hold Jesus and his mission at a distance. And I know that there's many of you who are feeling the conviction of that right now. And there's a part of you that wants to step in, but there's a part of you that says, I just don't want to get disappointed. And my plea is not not just go through the motions, but come back to Jesus. Come back to fellowship, even with people who disagree with you. Come back to the mission of God. Take your Twitter fingers off of your phone and sink them in to the dirty work of tearing off Jesus' roof and, and joining his mission and bringing people to the God who has come to restore all of life. See, both the community of the critics and the consumers have something in common. It's that they're focused on themselves. One is focused on their own questions and ideas. The other one's focused on their own desires. But this third question we ask, will we be a community of restoration? Is a question of will we step into the joy of self-giving love? You see, there's this community here, this community of restoration that's embodied by the four friends who carried the paralytic to Jesus. Instead of being an obstacle to mission, they become Participants in God's mission. It says that when they couldn't get in the door, here's how much they believed in Jesus. When they couldn't get in the door, they climbed up to the roof and they punched a hole through Jesus's roof because they knew the person below where they heard the sounds coming from was the one who could actually help their friend Joe. They aren't looking for Jesus to do some trick or to answer their trick question, but they see him as the God who's on a mission to restore all that's broken. And so when they punch that hole through through the roof, and Jesus looks up at them and sees their faith. It says he saw their faith, and then he forgave and healed their friend. I don't know how to explain that theologically. I don't know how to explain that. Most of the commentators that I were reading the kind of skipped around that. But I don't think the point is to theologically explain it. The point is to say that there is something about a community of people who have this deep faith in Jesus and are willing to do anything to get to him and to bring people to him that Jesus delights in and will respond to and will incorporate into his, rest, his mission of restoring all that's broken. What can we learn from them? What can we learn from how they were participating in God's mission? I think what they were doing sets the template of what our vision should be in this next season together. First of all, you see that they are centered on Jesus, that their only hope is in him. They are not under the illusion that they're the ones who can bring restoration. They're... Fully convinced that Jesus is the only one who can do the work. And as a church, when we say that all of life is all for Jesus, let us never forget the Jesus at the end of that sentence. Because it's not about our programs or our our ideas or our efforts, but it is about Jesus. And therefore, we will be a community who proclaims the gospel and says, he is the one who can rescue you and restore you and forgive your sins. He is the good news. But then we also see this community. They have eyes to see the suffering. How many paralyzed people, how many people in pain did the crowds move past on their way to get something from Jesus? But not these four guys. They saw their friend who needed healing. And they ran the other way, and they said, let's get our friend. Instead of being first in line, we'll be on, last in line to bring the vulnerable, the suffering, the, the folks who need forgiveness into the presence of Jesus. So they grab their corner of the bed, and they hobble along the streets. We see in this community, uh, this, these friends, a community that is willing to be sacrificial. I mean, it was costly for them. First of all, it costed them their energy. It couldn't have been easy to drag that guy up on the roof. But also financially, I mean, they're probably going to have to pay for that roof that they just punched a hole through. And then maybe the reputation, too. Like, what happens if they punch the hole in the roof, and then Jesus is like, uh, how dare you, you know? They're gonna. There's risk that's involved. There's sacrifice that's involved. And from what Will and Jason were just saying— you have been a community. We have been a community that has been willing to look at our own lives, to look at our possessions, our homes, our time, our energy, and say, it's not about me, but how can I leverage this for the sake of others and join the joy of being a part of Jesus' mission of restoration? You have been that. We have been that. And as we press forward into this next season, we must not leave that behind. We need to continue to be That sacrificial community. And so what does that look like? What does it look like for us to be the people who share the gospel, who serve our neighbors, who do fruitful work, who seek justice, who are friends of the poor and the sick and the friends of the marriages that are falling apart, the friends of our actual neighbors, Are we going to say all of life is all for Jesus and let that just be words? Or are we going to live as disciples who live all of life, all for Jesus? So what does that look like for us as a community? Let me give you three ways that you can get involved. This, I'm calling this our mission funnel. This describes kind of our approach to mission. There's three levels to it. If you want to call it the the mission candy corn, you can call it the mission candy corn as well. Um, but it's almost like a funnel because we want the spirit to drag people down that funnel, the deeper layers of, of intentionality with mission. So at that top level is city outreach. And we have city outreach groups. These are great volunteer opportunities with like the Rio Vista Center and iHelp where you can serve the poor or you can serve refugees. And there are there are um, volunteer opportunities and events that where we make that collective witness as a church. And it's crazy, I'll, I'll, I'll give Will some props. Whenever I go around and I mention Will's name to like people who are a part of the city, like city leaders who have like fancy titles and stuff, they always say that, that Will and his church, apparently it's his church, um, are doing such a good job, they are really caring for the city, and that's what those city outreach groups are about. But as we've prayed, we've we've realized that there's uh, deeper levels of mission that we can press into. One is the prayer and action groups. The prayer and action groups, it's a year-long, high-commitment, highly-focused community of people that are on mission together where they're looking at one area of life, whether that's um, a a particular neighborhood like the Dobson Ranch or uh, like the Somali refugees, a particular group of people. Or a particular issue like criminal justice. We're going to look at one thing. We're going to deeply understand it. We are going to pray together about it. And we are going to have each one of us have a plan of action that says, here's how I'm going to use my gifts and abilities to engage that thing. And my prayer is that we would have prayer and action groups scattered throughout the city. You know, in industries like food, the food industry, or like with issues like affordable housing. And I'm even praying that there would be communities of people from this church that God uses to send out to the unreached people groups to announce the gospel that form out of these prayer and action groups. My plea for this is to not join it if you're not willing to count the cost and to step into it. But if you're saying, I want to go deeper in in prayer and action, not just talk, then I want to encourage you to sign up for one of these. We have two starting. One focused on criminal justice in the prison system. The other one focused on the sanctity of life and caring for the unborn. And this is your opportunity. If you spent all summer long on social media talking a big game about this stuff, are you going to be more focused on words or actions? This is your chance to step into it. So you can go to the app and go to the Connect tab on the app to sign up for one of those. And then finally, we have the mission plan. And this one is for, uh, my prayer is that most of us in the congregation, hundreds of us, go through this. This is for people who say, I'm not going to add anything new to my life. I think God has me where he has me. But I need to be intentional in how I engage in God's mission. How can I share the gospel? How can I serve people? How can I do good work in this? And so we've created a process where you can meet with a pastor and develop a specific plan for how you are gonna engage in your context. It's gonna help you focus on a find a focus, like a particular people, place, or problem that you're gonna pour into, and, and ask how you're gonna share the gospel and serve others and do good work within that space. So the same training that I've used for overseas missionaries, i thought this is we've adapted it to make it training for you. And it's gonna be a highly customized thing. And all that we ask is we'll pour the time, I'll make this a high priority. But all we ask is that you show up and you live into it. So if you want to sign up for that, you can go to the Connect uh, tab on our app as well. So the candy corn, this is how we as a community are collectively going to participate in God's mission. We've asked who we are as a community, but I want to close by asking this final question. Not who are we, but who are you? Who are you? Each one of us identifies with someone in this passage, but who do you identify with the most? And if we have encountered the grace of God, the person we should identify with the most is the paralytic. And if, if we are the people who are struggling, who are saying, yeah, I'm deep in the consumerism. I'm deep in the criticism. I'm apathetic about God's mission. It's because we have forgotten who we are. We have forgotten that we are first beneficiaries of God's mission before we're ever participants in his mission. We've forgotten that yet while we may have legs that work, our hearts are paralyzed and they cannot get to God except for Jesus coming after us and rescuing us. We have forgotten what Ephesians 2 says. That it goes even deeper than paralyzed, but that we are dead in our sins. And that we can't do good works until we've encountered the grace and the mercy of God. And once we've encountered his overwhelming grace and mercy, that's what propels us into his mission of grace and mercy. You think about that paralytic. You think about after he was able to walk and to wiggle his toes, do you think that a day went by where he wasn't telling people about Jesus, where he wasn't serving others, when he wasn't joining in God's mission? There may have been. There may have been, but it would only happen if he had forgotten what Christ had done in that moment and how Christ had, had, had renewed him and rescued him and restored his very life. Because as we remember who he's been and what he's done for us, that we are recipients of mission before we're participants in mission. He forms us into the, the type of community that is sacrificially loving because he is sacrificially loving. We must never forget We must always remember. And that is why now we're going to close this time by taking communion together. Communion is the ultimate act of remembrance. Of us communally remembering what Christ has done for us. And as we remember, he shapes us into a community on mission. So right now I'm going to ask you to take the elements. First, we'll start with the bread. Bread representing the body of Jesus. Reminding us that in order for us to be saved, in order for us to be rescued, it wasn't just a roof that was torn open, but it was the body of Christ that was torn open on our behalf. Let's take the bread now and remember the body of Jesus. And then we move to the cup. The cup which... Has the, the wine or the juice that's red represents the blood of Christ? As we, we take it, and as we remember, we remember the blood that was poured out on our behalf, that made us right with God and formed us into a sacrificial community, go ahead and take the cup now in remembrance of Jesus. And having remembered Jesus together, let's now sing together. And let's pray. Jesus, you are the Lord over all creation. And you're the Lord over our life. You are the one who is on the mission to restore all that is broken, to restore all of life. And we pray that your restoration would leak into every area where we need it. And that we pray that we would hear your invitation to step in and to participate in your work of Spiritual, of physical, of social uh, mending. God, we pray that you would bring conviction where it needs to be, that you bring clarity where there needs to be, and that you would show us the particular place that you want us to step into right now. We pray that you would specifically lay that on our hearts now. We pray all of this in the great name of Jesus, our King. Amen.